News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It is tough times for BC farmers out there. In the past year, it's been floods, it's been drought, it's the rising cost of fuel and fertilizer, supply chain issues, well, you name it. And yes, we are paying more for food at our local grocery stores and markets for all of those reasons and much more. I mean, especially those supply chain disruptions, that's causing higher prices all up and down the West Coast. That's So much of our fruit and vegetables are being transported along that I-5, right? But only about one-third of the food consumed in BC is actually produced here. Can we do more on that front, particularly when it comes to donating some of this food too? Joining us now is Dan Huang Taylor, who's the Executive Director of Food Banks BC, which represents about 100 food banks across the province. Dan, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me on this morning, Sam. This must be a huge issue for food banks, is it, to, to make sure you can get local fresh food? Getting food at the moment is is the big issue, um, and ideally we're able to tap into the the local fresh food market. But uh, yes, it's it's very challenging. Um, the uh, the amount of uh, that you know the impact that we've seen over the over the last year, um, uh, the, the cost of living crisis, but put that on the back of everything that we've seen in the years previous with the pandemic and the uh, the emergency, the weather events that you mentioned there have created a huge demand for services at food banks. Uh, When you think about how many food banks are also needing to purchase a lot of the food that they use, that they they get out to their clients, and it's just an operating cost that's so much higher, the the strain on the food bank system is, is, is pretty significant. Would you say that donations are down, or is it just that there's so many more people who need the services? No, at both ends, we've seen uh, we've seen a, a, an increase in demand with a, with a drop in supply, about twenty five percent, and this is year on year um, of, uh, of numbers of people coming to food banks, but as, but also the frequency of visits as well, and donations have dropped in in the same sort of range, to, uh, twenty to thirty percent, depending on, on 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 where the food bank is. But uh, it, it's a, a bit of a perfect storm for uh, you know for creating a, a very difficult situation. Oh, it sounds like it. So you represent so many food banks around the province, Dan. Is this is this one particular area that is really feeling it, or are you seeing this everywhere? Well, we are seeing it quite universally. Um, there are different impacts or different factors that might impact one community to the next. Uh, when during the pandemic, for instance, we did see folks who worked in the in regions that were heavily reliant on the tourism or agricultural sectors that. Uh, were hit really hard by, say, the pandemic or the, the, the major droughts or floods of last year. Um, and uh, where folks were reliant on working in those industries, we might see a, a jump there. But the urban centres, the cost of living can be significantly higher for, for rent and just, just the, the day-to-day costs. So we, we see the pinch in, in, in every community. So has it gotten worse, would you say, in terms of that relationship you've got with producers like has that gotten worse in the last couple of years because of all these pandemic issues and then the flooding and the droughts and all of that? Because I know that previously, Dan, there was that great program with BC Fresh, right, where people could donate money right in the grocery store lineup and that would help food banks. So what has changed? Well, the relationship hasn't changed. The food bank system and um, and the, the relationship between producers and suppliers, distributors, all all 
levels of the supply chain all the way through to consumers remains extremely strong. I think it's the capacity within some of those uh, within some of those levels of the supply chain to, to give more. Um, we, but we have continued to see a great deal of support from the agricultural sector, and um, and that and then all the way through to the, the frontline retailers uh, and uh, and and then the consumers as well who are who are supporting food banks. But I think it's it's more about people's ability to give more, and we know that when the uh, the you know, last year's weather events resulted in some shortages of supplies or some crops that um, uh, would have been more limited because of, uh, because of the impact of those, of those climate events. Uh, that did create some challenges for, uh, for us to be able to access the, the same volume of food that might have been available in previous years. But I, I wouldn't say that the relationship has, has suffered. We, we, you know, we want to do more to support the sector um, and uh, because we know that the sector has supported us. For a long time. Right. What do you think, though, that we need to do to improve the situation for BC to produce more, to provide more? How can we do that? I think, well, from a food bank's perspective, one of the major things we need to look at, first of all, is how to reduce waste. We are seeing uh, an abhorrent level of waste of food across the country and here in BC as well. And that's, once again, at all levels, from the producers down to the uh, down to the, the, the consumer, you and I, and, uh, and how much waste we see in the household. So we need to uh, really take a, a hard look at how we can reduce waste, and, and that can happen in, in many different ways. Uh, we can get more food in, back into the food system that would otherwise be uh, thrown, thrown away, put into a landfill, it's creating greenhouse gases. It's a really horrible use for that food. Um, and... Uh, and, and then we need to look at ways that we can support the farmers and the agricultural sector to increase the availability of, of food. And, and I think there are, there are lots of areas of this that, that need to be developed further, such as encouraging more people to come into the sector and continue preservation of our agricultural land reserve. Um, but there are so many innovative solutions out there, you know, maximizing the use of our land, to the most effective and efficient way that we, we can, so that we, we can continue to grow um, and support the ongoing needs of both the folks who are facing food insecurity and the growing population that we, uh, that we have as well. Do you think the appetite is there to do that, to, to do those things that you've suggested? I, I believe so. Um, uh, there's, there's been uh, work that we're, we're doing with uh, some um, stakeholders in this space and the uh, and with the provincial government to explore ways of tackling this from a food security perspective but um, I do believe it needs to be a conversation that is uh, is, is is held front and center uh, because food is is obviously as essential as it gets our food and our water and ensuring that the preservation of those systems remain intact and that we are building for the future as well because that we, we you know are in a very very challenging situation right now um, and we need to put some put some work in to ensure that we're in a, in a good place going forward uh, Dan thanks so much for your time this morning.
Thanks for having me on, Cindy. Yeah, we appreciate the discussion. Dan Huang-Taylor is the Executive Director of Food Banks BC. They represent about 100 food banks around the province, talking about essentially doing more here in BC, growing more of our own um, you know, fruits and vegetables and consuming more of them right here. Only about one-third of the food that we consume in BC is actually produced here, and we can certainly do more on that front. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the relationship between Canada and China is certainly in the spotlight today, and for good reason. A few weeks ago, we learned about allegations regarding China's interference in our federal elections. Then we all saw and heard the video of Chinese President Xi Jinping confronting Prime Minister Trudeau about that. But now we're also learning more about the investigations into foreign interference in Canada. For more on that now, we are joined by Global National Investigative Journalist Sam Cooper. Hello, Sam. Good morning, Simi. So tell me, you've been looking into some, I guess, people of interest in regards to this investigation. What have you learned? That's right. Uh, for, for, um, for about six months of this year, I've been gathering uh, sensitive intelligence from sources about this uh, alleged vast foreign interference campaign in Canada run by President Xi's uh, so-called United Front Work Department. In the second story of our uh, investigation on these matters, I revealed that sources allege a man at the center of uh, a number of the allegations that CSIS ha- is investigating and has briefed up to the highest levels of Canada's government is a businessman named Wei Chenyi. Mr. Wei has a uh, real estate and grocery store interests in Canada, in Ontario and British Columbia. And what the sources with the awareness of uh, this, uh, these intelligence investigations say is that he was essentially, he and uh, a pro-Beijing association in Toronto served as intermediaries in alleged covert fund transfers from the Toronto Chinese consulate into uh, an alleged election interference network in 2019. That's the, the Canadian federal election. So that is uh, providing more detail on a very uh, powerful allegation. Uh, remember, this hasn't been proven in court. Canadian intelligence sources and police sources have been coming forward to me because they believe Canada is at such risk due to this uh, attack from the Chinese Communist Party, allegedly. The second allegation concerns Vancouver. We have learned that national security units in Canada are looking into alleged covert Chinese police stations in Toronto and one location suspected in Vancouver. Again, they're looking at Mr. Wei Chen Yi, who uh, declares himself as a, a Fujian province uh, a business leader and uh, a over, so, so-called overseas Chinese uh, united front leader in Canada. So this uh, uh, Mr. Wei has a couple of grocery store locations in Vancouver. I've reported before on uh, meetings which he has attended with uh, a number of uh, other so-called United Front leaders in Vancouver. Okay. Is, is all of this being taken up seriously by the authority, Sam? Because th- we're hearing more and more about this now. Well, uh, to be blunt, uh, it hasn't been taken very seriously, according to the experts on Parliament Hill. Some, including the former uh, BC MP Kenny Chu, raised uh, what they say would, would, would be a, a bill to deal with this problem. That's a foreign agent registry to deal with people working under the table for hostile regimes like Iran, uh, North Korea, China, Russia. And that bill didn't pass. Uh, 
at this point, uh, as you've said, uh, this has become international news mm-hmm. that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, and his staff claim that he raised these issues with President Xi at the G20 in Asia. And of course, uh, we've seen publicly that President Xi uh, apparently differs with what the, their conversations were and appeared to chide or rebuke Prime Minister Trudeau and his staff for, for leaking, uh, you know, what was supposedly said. So, uh, Simi, uh, the, the simple answer is, look, there is recommendations from a bipartisan national security panel in Ottawa saying that Canada needs foreign interference laws to deal with, you know, increasingly hostile environment from countries like China and Russia that are trying to subvert our democracy very aggressively. And country, our allies, Australia, UK, United States, others have powerful laws against this, and Canada is simply wide open. We don't have laws to deal with this modern interference. Sam, have you been given any kind of an indication about how widespread this effort could be? I mean, you've mentioned Toronto and Vancouver. Are these efforts being undertaken outside of those major cities? Uh, Yes, uh, I I should say that my, my intelligence that I've reported on is broad and high level. A lot of the allegations deal with the the toronto chinese consulate but but certainly as this new story indicates uh, the rcmp are looking at the very same networks in vancouver i won't get ahead of my reporting but uh simi i can tell you that i do have i do have from sources intelligence that indicates they are very concerned of the very same political interference uh the very same uh pressuring spying surveilling harassing Chinese-Canadian communities, intimidating Chinese-Canadian, Hong Kong-Canadian, Taiwan-Canadian, Uyghur communities in Vancouver. This is a very serious concern, and uh, I'll continue to investigate. Yeah. What, what has been the government response so far, Sam, to these allegations? Well, the government uh, has responded in the sense that uh, the Prime Minister's office and the Prime Minister have not confirmed what our intellig- what my intelligence that I gathered says. That is that the Prime Minister... Uh, was briefed with with, with memos uh, starting in January of this year of exactly, you know, this vast interference scheme, including the 2019 alleged election interference, covert funding from China. They have, however, said that uh, the, the prime minister responded uh, the day after our story broke, saying that he's concerned with aggressive games, quote, from various countries uh, looking to subvert Canada's democracy. And I think we can see... Uh, the Prime Minister's efforts to, to talk to President Xi at the G20 indicate that uh, his office and this government uh, is at least on the surface uh, trying, uh, indicating that they take uh, what we've reported seriously. All right, Sam, thank you so much for that this morning. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that federal officials are investigating because yet another humpback whale has washed up dead on Haida Gwaii, this time this one happening just this past weekend. So what is going on and should we be concerned about this? Well, Jackie Hildring joins us now, humpback whale researcher for the Marine Education and Research Society. Jackie, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you very much. Is this concerning? Uh, Difficult to answer. Um, Very often dead whales sink. So it isn't known even if this is an increase or a decrease. Uh, concerning that there are dead whales, certainly. Uh, but the, of the four of them, and there have been four since the middle of October, there are only the opportunities for necrop examinations by Fisheries and Oceans Canada for three of them. 
and two of them did have signs of blunt force trauma, there's a small chance that the large impact happened after they were already dead, but it is unlikely considering other factors. So we hope that the public concern around this awakens people to the fact that we have a second chance with some very, very big whales on our coast and that they know what to do when they see a dead animal, but also in reducing the risks to the whales. So what do you do if you see a dead humpback whale like this? What is the right thing to do? There is one phone number, 1-800-465-4336. And this is the one phone number for everything from when you see violations of the marine mammal regulations to dead animals to uh, entangled uh, whales. So 1-800-465-4336. Okay, so call that number. What would you? What are researchers looking for then, Jackie, when there is a necropsy that is done here? What are some signs that this might have been distress? Yeah, so it is, it, having been involved directly with one of the necropsies, it is the amount of bruising um, and blood. Sometimes there are fractures within the bones, but then there is also the, at the like, microscopic level of looking for potential pathogens or whatever else the, the body condition could reveal. Okay, so there's still a lot of work done. How often does something like this happen, though? Yeah, so this is extraordinary that four have washed up, but I can't emphasize strongly enough how often dead whales sink. It's kind of nature's design that all their nutrients go to the bottom of the ocean. So these four are ambassadors, uh, and, and thankful again that there is the interest in them for however many whales are dead at the bottom of the ocean. And it's not just about humpback whales. We have a second chance with another huge whale species as well, fin whales. Uh, We whaled um, baleen whale species up to 55 years ago. And what we know as researchers is the evidence of the survivors. So we see terrible scarring from propellers. We see that about half of them have scarring from entanglement. And again, those are the survivors. How many are dead at the bottom of the ocean? So that there is also awareness around how very different baleen whales are, that they are not as aware of their environment as toothed whales who have biosonar is desperately important as well from a perspective of the whale safety, but also from boater safety. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering too then. Or like, is this a concern for a while? Like how healthy is the humpback whale population? Yeah, it's difficult to answer. Like these whales are giants, fin whales as well, gray whales. They have made a recovery from when we whaled them up to 55 years ago, but their numbers aren't known. And in fact, with fin whales, the second biggest whale on the planet, that's more often found further to the north or further out in the 350 kilometers of ocean off British Columbia's coast. Right now, there's even consideration that they get reduced protection. So yes, their numbers are coming back from when we used to butcher them, but their threats are undeniably increasing Climate change is a, a variation in things. It's, it creates uncertainty. And, but when you've got big whales, baleen whales, who could be resting right below the surface, nursing right below the surface, who are usually not going in straight lines, who are often not aware of boats, when they're coming back to where there's more people on the coast, there's, of course, an increase in the risk of vessel traffic hitting them and also of entanglement. You've got an overlap with human activity. So it certainly isn't a time for the protection to be reduced. Okay. Is it, have you noticed a change then? I know there was a lot of studying of this topic kind of during the pandemic because of the reduced amount of shipping and activity. Did that make a difference? Yeah, there's, it's so hard to know. I, I know we wanted to see a positive through all of that. 
there is some research up in Alaska that the humpback calls changed uh, because there were less cruise ships. So indeed, noise is also a threat, very much a more direct threat is the literal impact of vessel traffic and the risk of entanglement. Okay, that's interesting. So the humpback calls change, like in what way? So depending on what was in the water, the humpback whales communicated differently? Yes. And it, and again, there's uncertainty about this. And in many ways, there wasn't a quiet ocean because we all cranked up our consumer behavior and large vessel traffic coming from other parts of the planet as a result. So there are only these very isolated places where any sort of interpretation can be made, like less cruise ships in Alaska, and that our colleagues had enough data to look at calls before and after but it isn't known what that means. But absolutely, like as recently as last night, you know, anecdotally listening to humpbacks live via hydrophone, uh, thanks to our, our colleagues at Orca Lab, and you hear a vessel come in, two male humpbacks were singing, and they stopped singing. So, of course, like the whales live in a world of sound, and, and thank you, because hopefully there is the awareness that comes from this, wow, we used to kill these big whales up to 55 years ago, there's still many ways to kill a whale. <laughs> and while there isn't the definitive knowledge around these four humpbacks, one of them was never even found back, was just seen floating, hopefully people do realize they are a game changer. We have a second chance. We have our information, especially for boaters, to realize like that they are at risk because the whales are unpredictable. It's all bundled under seablowgoslow.org. That is good advice. Jackie, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. That is Jackie Hildering, who's a humpback whale researcher for the Marine Education and Research Society, talking about yet another humpback whale that is washed up dead on Haida Gwaii. They're certainly getting a lot of attention. This is the fourth one, she said, but we still don't know exactly what is going on here. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to talk about our very troublesome influenza season that we've got going on right now. Joining us is Health Minister Adrian Dix. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. All right, I just checked online, and the wait time right now at BC Children's Hospital Emergency Room is about seven hours. Now, that seems to me that there is a problem there. Are you worried about that? I'm uh, worried about everything, uh, Simi, because it's not just BC Children's. It's emergency rooms around the province, right? And what happens when you go to an emergency room, and that's telling you what you might expect, is we triage people. So more seriously ill people get seen first, right? And that can be frustrating sometimes if you're going to the emergency room and you see other people treated first. That's the reason that's happening. Our staff at BC Children's are doing an outstanding job. And we've been taking steps, of course, to support our emergency rooms because we were expecting a very serious uh, respiratory illness season, and we have one. And so we're taking steps across the board. But the most important thing, the most important step, that we've been taking is having the biggest uh, vaccination campaign in BC's history against both influenza and COVID-19. So far, 1.2 million people, more than that as of yesterday, have been vaccinated against influenza. But that is more than, that's about 50% of those over 65. We need that to keep being higher. But it's only 10 to 12% of children. And I strongly encourage uh, parents to get their children immunized against vaccinated against um, COVID-19, of course, and also against influenza. That will have an impact on those very wait times you're talking about. Is there a plan to deal with what happens if all these beds are full? Like we're very close to having the beds full. Well, they're not full at BC Children's, but they are in lots of hospitals around the province. 
And yes, we do have those plans. And we detailed them in September. The first set is to ensure that people who could be in long-term care, that we create long-term care capacity and we move people there. And that is um, that plan is uh, in operation. We have some specific um, uh, plans to improve patient flow. The reason having more space in the wards is important is when people are admitted, they, they don't get stuck in the emergency room, which causes, um, obviously, difficulties. In addition uh, to that, we have other measures we can take. I mean, uh, I know it was last year and then the year before, but we had uh, respiratory illness season in both of those years, and we had significant actions. When we had Omicron, the, Omicron, the rise of the Omicron variant of concern in December and January of last year, we had to defer, for example, a non-urgent scheduled surgeries. We don't want to do that. In fact, we did more surgeries in the last two weeks than in those two weeks ever before. We don't want to do that, but those steps are available to us. You'll also recall during the Delta variant, we had to transport 150-odd people who were in critical care by air ambulance from the north to the south at that time. So we have measures in place, but the important thing to do right now, and I know I'm repeating myself, is for more people to get vaccinated. 51% of children 5 to, uh, to 12 have been vaccinated in BC, and that's good, but obviously it could be better, approximately 49% better. And in terms of influenza, as I say, a lot of people can get vaccinated as well because some of this, including uh, the risk to the health of, um, of children, is preventable through vaccination. What about a stronger message on masks? Well, we have a pretty strong message relative to any other jurisdiction in the country. We have the same guidance uh, to, to wear masks, particularly, for example, if you have the sniffles and need to go out. A strong message to stay home if you're sick with any respiratory illness right now is very important, which was backed up by changing the legislation around sick days to apply them to all workers in B.C., um, and and in BC we have, and no other jurisdiction has this, a mass mandate in healthcare facilities where people are particularly vulnerable. That means in acute care and in long-term care, as well as the only province in the country with a vaccine mandate for healthcare workers and professionals in those settings. So we do have some strong measures, but we do also have to continue to learn from what we've learned over two and a half years of this, almost two and three-quarters years of this, of what we can do to protect one another. As you recall, a year ago, we didn't have vaccines for children 5 to 12 at that time. And we did have mass mandates in in a number of places, but we also had, of course, serious restrictions on other activities, including gathering together. And we all remember those discussions. We had many of them, Simi, in that time. So this is a different point in the pandemic. We still have to be prudent and uh, take the steps we have to protect ourselves and our families and our communities. We also have to get vaccinated. Half a million people got vaccinated. Uh, There are half a million vaccinations in the last two weeks against either COVID-19 or influenza. That's great news. Never been done before, never been seen before in BC. But, you know, we could have done hundreds of thousands more, and I strongly recommend that people book their appointments. So combined with that, though, in the meantime, as we're kind of waiting for more people to do that, would you like to see more people kind of making that choice to put a mask on? Well, I think it's very important. When I go to Save on Foods, uh, indoor public place, or, or Safeway in my constituency, I wear a mask indoors. And so, uh, and I don't require a legal requirement to do that. I do that um, both to protect myself and others. So that's not 
that's not a bad choice to make, and we, we've strongly and tried to strongly encourage that. Equally, um, we have to make strong individual decisions not to go to work or not to go to that extra thing or not to go to that volunteer activity uh, if we're sick at right now, and that's important, or go to school if we're sick. That's an important step. It's not a legal requirement. But it is, I think, a strong, I don't, can't deliver that message more strongly. And so these are all, not all of these um, uh, guidance and advice are legal requirements. But that doesn't change their value. And equally, um, we need to uh, ensure, and again, I'll say it a third time, uh, that um, right. people get vaccinated and get protected. Because uh, we have the largest vaccination program in history. More than a thousand pharmacies in BC, hundreds of other venues, including public health venues, and uh, and so there's an opportunity to do that. Go to the Get Vaccinated website, book your appointment, and if you can't handle the website for whatever reason, and I'm sympathetic to that, call one eight three three eight three eight two three two three. Right. So what you're counting on then is for people to make that decision on their own, make that their own judgment call, and do the right thing. That's right. Well, we don't have. Other than in healthcare, mandatory uh, vaccination in BC either. In healthcare, it's not mandatory, of course, but to work in healthcare, you have to be have to be vaccinated against COVID-19. We're the only place in Canada to have that. Otherwise, yes, it's an individual choice. In the initial stages of COVID-19 and dose one and two, 94% of people are vaccinated. Sometimes we hear how people are divided on the question of vaccination. Well, the division was 94 to six, just to be clear. Um, but we need people to continue with that now. It's very important now. Two important slides from Dr. Henry yesterday in her presentation, one on COVID-19, which showed that you're four times more likely to be in hospital if you're not vaccinated against someone who's received their booster dose. You're four times more likely to be in critical care. You're four times more likely to pass away from COVID-19. Pretty good reasons to be vaccinated. And on influenza, as I say, about 50% of seniors, over 65 have got vaccinated, you know, about 12% of children. That's one in eight. So we need to increase those numbers. It makes everybody safer, but especially it makes your child safer. Minister Dix, thank you for your time this morning. Hey, take care, Simi. You too. That is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, explaining very clearly why there will not be a mandate to put on a mask. What they're asking is for people to make that judgment call on their own. Don't go out and vote when you have a cold. Uh, And if you got the sniffles, put a mask on if you're going out, but they are not going to mandate that that happen in indoor public places. This is Mornings with Simi. Pancreatic cancer is one of the deadliest forms of cancer out there. It has just a 10% five-year survival rate, which is why research is so important to better understand what is going on with pancreatic cancer. There's a little bit of good news on that front this morning. There has been a record-breaking donation of $5 million made to pancreatic cancer research. That is the largest such donation in BC's history. Where did it come from? Well, it was made by the Hager family in memory of Bob Hager. So joining us now to talk about how important and significant this is, we have a couple of guests. We have Dr. Daniel Renouf, who's the co-director of Pancreas Centre BC. Dr. Renouf, thank you for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks for uh, having me. And we also have Judy Hager, philanthropist and wife of Bob Hager, joining us this morning. Judy, thanks for being here. Yes, very kind of you to ask us. Thank you. Well, Judy, I'm going to start with you. Why was this donation so significant for your family? 
I think the inspiration for this gift uh, to VGH and BC Cancer is really about our family carrying on with Bob's initial determination to do something about this devastating cancer. I know he would be pleased about this. Well, that's good to hear. Dr. Renouf, what kind of a difference will this make? This is really going to make a remarkable difference. Uh, uh, Judy and the entire Hagar family has been instrumental uh, in supporting pancreatic cancer research uh, over the last decade in BC. And we've grown to be an international leader in this field, uh, but there's still a huge amount of progress needed. Uh, and this is really going to help kickstart that. And Dr. Renouf, why is pancreatic cancer so tough to get a handle on? Why do we have these poor results with the diagnosis? There's a few reasons for that. One of them is that we don't have any good screening tests for pancreatic cancer. The symptoms uh, are quite vague, and so most patients aren't diagnosed with it until it's already spread and at an advanced stage. Uh, a second uh, cause of, of, our, our, of the poor survival from this cancer is that uh, traditionally our drug therapies have not worked very well for this, and uh, we have made some progress with that, but there's still a, a huge way to go. Okay, so what will happen then with this donation? Where will it go? Well, I think one key area is to continue to expand the team here and recruit the best people around the world to BC uh, to really drive innovative new ways of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of finding new, new ways to treat and diagnose pancreatic cancer. But something that's going to affect patients right now in, in real time is to bring the science to the patients. And, and one area we're really excited about is finding uh, individual drivers uh, of, of the cancer within a patient so that we can tailor the treatment in a much more personalized way. Now, Judy, you talked about how important this was uh, for your husband, Bob. What got him so deeply involved in this? I think because the diagnosis and the attempt to do surgery, the surgery really didn't work for Bob, and he knew he had only a few months to live, so it kind of made him bring together um, Dr. Renouf and Dr. Schaefer, who later uh, appeared on the scene, but doctors and um, people from his work who could sit down and make a business plan. He was a businessman uh, to get something moving. And, you know, he only lived the four months, but by the time that time was up, Pancreas Center BC was really on the ground and running. So um, our family is just delighted to be able to support this, and we hope that others who are listening today will be open to helping with this ongoing pancreatic cancer initiative. Judy, what a man he was. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. He's got this diagnosis, he's dealing with this, and at the same time he thought, no, no, I'm going to make a difference here. Yes, I think he was quite a remarkable man in that way, and we were so proud of him. So to be able to do something again, uh, I, I hear him whispering in my ear just, Keep it going, Jude, and uh, that's what we're doing. Oh, that is so sweet. Um, Dr. Renouf, then, so this sounds like a long-term plan. Can this really change things? Definitely, definitely it can. And I think, uh, as you were just saying, Bob was definitely a remarkable man, and one of the kind of core themes that, that I think he was passionate about and Judy has, is, is passionate about is, is teamwork and for us to work really closely as a, as a clinical team but also as a scientific team and integrate that group uh, together. We also work as a team nationally and internationally. It's a very connected community so that uh, any discovery made here uh, translates to patients around the world. Is this an issue, like those issues that you identified in terms of why pancreatic cancer doesn't perhaps get enough attention, are are those issues worldwide? Would you say that's the case everywhere? 
Definitely it is. And we're, I would say we're a leader in BC, a world leader in bringing attention to pancreatic cancer. We're far ahead where many other uh, regions are. Okay. And so what is your hope for this then? Is it to get that test so that you can diagnose it faster? Like if, if we can catch it earlier, wouldn't that make a huge difference? That would make a, a remarkable difference. I think our, our hope is to better understand the science to, to make it to that point, but also to uh, improve our ability to treat patients that are being diagnosed with it right now. Right. Is this one of those areas where we want to get to know what the genetic makeup is of this type of cancer? Because I know that's so critical for treatment these days, isn't it? Yeah, that's a great question. That is a huge area of research in pancreatic cancer. Uh, Judy and the Hagar family have been big supporters of uh, genetic testing for pancreatic cancer, and we're already a leader in Canada in being able to do standard genetic testing for, for any patient diagnosed right now with pancreatic cancer. We know there are genetic causes of this cancer, BRCA mutations being one. That's a gene that's also showed it associated with breast and ovarian cancer, but people don't realize it's, it's, it's associated with uh, with five to eight percent of pancreatic cancers as well, uh, and it has very important implications both in terms of the treatment someone receives, but also uh, if they're found to have this, uh, their family members are screened, and we can do preventative measures for breast and ovarian cancer if uh, if a BRCA mutation is found in a family. Right. Okay. So then, Judy, is this the beginning? Then, can you foresee a continued presence for the Hager family? Uh, I would think so, yes. I think it's very exciting, and I hope others will join with this. I just think it's it's a cancer that we can't kind of sweep under the rug anymore. Nobody wants to hear someone has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, but we need to bring it out front and be frank about it and have the research that's going on with these remarkable doctors. I think it will make a huge difference for many people. I think it will, too. Dr. Renouf, where can people find more information? Uh, you can go to the BC Cancer website, and we also have a Pancreas Center BC website, uh, and uh, as well as uh, Vancouver General Hospital, uh, as well as the, the BC Cancer Foundation and VGH Foundations. All right, sounds good. Thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. Oh, thank Thanks. you for having us. Thanks so much for having us, Sammy. Much appreciated. Yeah, best of luck. That is Dr. Daniel Renouf, who's a co-director of the Pancreas Center BC, uh, talking about the donation made by the Hager family. Judy Hager, philanthropist, wife of Bob Hager, in whose memory this donation was made. $5 million, the largest donation to pancreatic cancer research in BC's history. And you know what? It is desperately needed. As I said earlier, it is one of the deadliest forms of cancer with a 10% five-year survival rate. We can only hope donations like this will make that difference.